Micah chapter 7, verses 11 to 17. I want to take up the reading in verse 8. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy, the city of Jerusalem is personified to say. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Then my enemy will see, and shame will cover her who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her. Now she will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. A day for the building of your walls. In that day the boundary shall be far extended. In that day they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, and from Egypt to the river, from sea to sea, and from mountain to mountain. But the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants, for the fruit of their deeds. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you. Let's pray. Father, as we come into your word, I pray that we would have eyes of faith to see beyond what is immediately before us in the text, to see how, and so crucially, this word, these promises, point us to our Lord Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, that we would be in awe and wonder today at your great word and your great works. I pray that the effect of it would be what it was on Micah. I pray, Father, that all of our hopes would be Godward and all of our prayers God-centered. I pray, my Father, that you would give to me your Holy Spirit that not only with the words of my mouth, but from my heart, I would exalt in Jesus alone. I pray, Father, that Christ would be glorified. Would you please use me as I preach? And I pray that you would glorify your Son in, in the response that you compel from your people today. We look to you for your grace and mercy in our time of need. We pray with confidence in Jesus' name. Amen. The more that you know me, the more you will realize that I can't multitask. Jacob Colvin. Yeah, I knew he'd be looking at me and laughing. Uh, he has uh, frequently 
made fun of his preacher seems to be a theme in uh, the, the younger part of the Calvin household. I don't know what it is. Uh, <laughs> he, he has frequently uh, made fun of me for my inability to multitask because I tune out everything else and I'm focused completely on one thing. But I'm glad uh, for this moment that he can't argue back and forth with me because I want to submit today, not on the authority of the Word of God for this moment, but uh, on the um, lesser, much lesser authority of recently conducted, very professionally done scientific studies that have established that neither can you. That we are not good. <laughs> this, this is more of a monologue, more of than a dialogue, so you'll have to save your argument for later. That uh, none of us are good at multitasking. Many studies have recently established this. So uh, parents of students, and I'm sorry students from what I'm about to say, um, Janin, your parents aren't here so you don't have to worry about it too much, but if, if a student tells you that they can uh, you know, carry on on social media with a couple friends, watch their favorite TV show, and study for their test the next day all at the same time, they're mistaken, and you will be duped if you believe them. It's true. Although I'll say one thing. Uh, if they want to have their music on, uh, apparently that's still workable because we, we have a, use a different part of our brains to uh, listen to music than to study. So anyway, the human mind, however, is best suited for one concentration. As soon as we begin to attempt two or three different mental tasks at once, our effectiveness in all of them is severely diminished. But God, we can say, is very different. John Piper has said not too long ago that God is always doing 10,000 things in your life and you may be aware of three of them. And this is not to mention the tens of thousands of things that he is doing in all the earth, in creation, and in the spiritual realm. As he who works all things according to the counsel of his will is working all things together for the good of those who love him. Now, if it wasn't for the word of God, we wouldn't be able to... Uh, here to understand, to, to know anything of the multitasking God. We wouldn't know any of His works in salvation if it wasn't for the Word. But we have the Word. Now, secret things belong to God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. Deuteronomy 29. And the things that God has revealed to us about His works, He intends for us to know. And Micah chapter 7, verses 11 to 17, can help us to know the works of God. The Bible says in Psalm 111, verse 2, Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Micah 7 can help us. Now one thing that we must appreciate about a book like Micah, is the place that it has in the history of our salvation. This is not a standalone book that 
feature stand-alone promises concerning stand-alone works. There are no stand-alone promises. There are no stand-alone works. Everything in the Word of God is connected. Every promise, every word is yes in Christ. There can't be stand-alone promise then. And every work is for uniting, in the end, all things in Christ. And so there are no stand-alone works. And I want you to see the scope of this network. The network of the promises, the words, and the works of God. I want you to see the scope of this thing. So what we're going to do today is we're going to pick on, pick out these promises from Micah 7, 11 to 17, and we're going to connect them to the larger network of the promises of God. We're going to step back and go back to the origin of those promises, and then we're going to follow their winding until they land on the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll see how these promises here, connected to the beginning, are brought to fruition in Jesus. And I believe that the effect of this will be what it was on Micah. That we will be filled with God-centered hopes. And within us will be formulated God-centered prayers. Our hopes and our prayers will not be the same. Now, as far as the structure goes before we get into this text. What you have in verses 11 and 12 is a promise of salvation. In verse 13, a promise of judgment. In verse 14, right there in the middle of our text, you have a a prayer that accords with these promises. In verse 15, another promise of salvation. And then verses 16 and 17, another promise of judgment. So it goes salvation, judgment, prayer, salvation, and judgment again. Now, as far as the historical context and the context of our verses here, in a hundred years from Micah's time, Jerusalem's population will be absolutely decimated. One hundred years from when Micah writes. And the city will be nothing but smoldering ruins. In the verses that we read a moment ago, from verses 8 and following, the city of Jerusalem is being personified to look beyond the coming disaster and judgment. And the city speaks with a defiant hope. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. And with that hope of Jerusalem, of the people of God, like this sudden cloudburst, promises pour out in verse 11. It's really very sudden, isn't it? It's hard when you're reading it aloud to know how to transition to, the, to verse 11 because it's so different, it's so sudden, it's very exuberant. It says, a day for the building of your walls. And that day, the boundary shall be far extended. So the destruction of Jerusalem in 587-586 BC, will not be the end of the city of Jerusalem. In 539 BC, the, the captives held in Babylon will be released, and thousands of them will return to the city of Jerusalem in order to, be, in order to rebuild it. 
promise fulfilled? Verse 11's promise fulfilled, a day for the building of your walls, and that day the boundary shall be far extended? Yes. Partially. Partially. This is the way it is with the promises of God. One promise can mean, and this is an underestimation, one promise can mean a hundred good things for the people of God. More than physical expansion. God means for his people to grow 10,000 fold. But the concentration of this promise, as we read on into verse 12, is that the, the people of God will not, he's not promising they, that they will grow from within, but rather that they will grow from without. Look at verse 12. They will grow from the nations. He says, in that day, they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt and from Egypt to the river that is the Euphrates, which was in Assyria, from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. The people of God will grow from, from outside, from the nations. And look who is called out very specifically for this promise. This is incredible. If you know really the, the history of what was going on here, it was two of the foremost of the enemies of God's people. Assyria, who right at the moment of this uh, writing wants to d- knock Jerusalem down, and Egypt. One of the, I guess you would, you know, that would be the uh, mis- most uh, historic, um, I don't know exactly what I want to say, of the enemies of God's people. He says they will come and they will be added to the people of God. Now, I believe that this is literal. I believe that God is promising that national Egyptians and national Assyrians will be added to the people of God. They will join themselves to Israel. But I believe there is more to this. That I believe that Assyria and Egypt are called out very specifically here as representatives of everyone who is far off whom the people of God would naturally deem to be unreachable. They can't be reached. I mean, can you imagine being a Jew inside Jerusalem and looking outside your city at the encroaching army of Assyrians and Micah promising one day they'll be, they'll be with us. They'll be, they'll be here. They'll be worshiping our God. They would say, no way. And likely a good many of them would struggle with wanting that to happen. These are unreachable people. This promise concerns all the aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and all the strangers to the covenants of promise, to use Paul's words from Ephesians 2. God, now, before I, I go any further, let's step back now. Okay, we have this promise in Micah 7, 11 and 12. So let's step back and let's connect it to the larger network of the promises of God. Let's go back to the origin of this. Back in the book of Genesis, God had promised his patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that is the patriarchs of his people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He said, in you and your offspring, all the families and nations of the earth will be blessed. In you, all the earth will be blessed. That's the origin of this promise. Now, let's take it forward beyond Micah to Jesus. Following Pentecost, 
After the apostles had received the Holy Spirit poured out from Jesus, who had just ascended into heaven, Peter was preaching. And this is what he said in Acts 3. And all the prophets who have spoken, I should have asked you to turn there earlier, sorry. And all the prophets who have spoken, from Samuel and those who came after him, also proclaimed, Peter said, these days. He said to the Jewish people, you are the sons of the prophets and sons of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now listen, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Peter was saying, in fulfillment of that covenant promise so long before, God sent Jesus to bless you first. With what? Not health and wealth and so on. But by turning every one of you away from your wickedness to God. And he said he's coming to you again first. First, but not only. Let me rewind just a little bit. On the day that Jesus was welcomed into the city of Jerusalem by the the, praises of the people and the antagonism of the religious leaders, there were certain Gentiles, certain Greeks that came looking for Jesus. Remember, they came to Philip and they said, we want to see Jesus. Philip went to Andrew and they requested a meeting with Christ. And the Gentiles seeking Jesus on that day and the Father speaking from heaven moved Jesus to promise I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Paul, writing in Ephesians 2, says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We are blessed to be full-fledged heirs of the covenants of promise, which promise is the forgiveness of our sins by God through Christ so that through Christ we may be brought to God. So this is the promise of Micah 7 that we have just read in verses 11 and 12. From all over the earth, the peoples will be drawn by the cross of Christ into the people of Christ, to bring glory to Christ and to enjoy Him together forever. This is, I I want you to see, and I, I, I want you to be compelled to amazement at the scope of this promise and the outworking of our salvation through Christ. That Micah 7, 11 and 12, which is really an obscure verse and a minor prophet, is speaking, is promising concerning us. In fact, Isaiah, Micah's contemporary, put it like this, that the Lord will say, listen to this, God will say, I believe God is now saying, I want to say that very boldly, I believe that God is now saying this, blessed be Egypt my people, and Assyria the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. That's coming from Isaiah 19. 
I believe that God is now saying that. And don't get me wrong, not over every single person who's Egyptian and every single Assyrian. There aren't any Assyrians, but those who come from the land formerly Assyria and all of the Jews. But he says that over those who are his, who have believed in his son. He says, Egypt, my people. Assyria, the work of my hands. Israel, my inheritance. And this will culminate one day in a multitude beyond number of people beyond, before the throne, before the throne and before the Lamb, singing, worthy is the Lamb. People of every tribe and nation and language. An incredible promise of salvation centered on Christ. That's the first promise of salvation. Now this promise of judgment, verse 13. But the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants for the fruit of their deeds. You will either receive the Lord's salvation or you will receive the Lord's judgment. But those who do not repent of their deeds will receive the fruit of their deeds. That is the desolating judgment of God. Now I'm going to, that's it. I'm gonna, that's all I'm going to say about verse 13. Because there's more about judgment to come, which I'll cover a little bit more thoroughly. But the question is, what do we do with these promises? What do you do with this? Well, what did Micah do? Look down at verse 14. What did Micah do? He cried out to God. What we must do with the promise, promises of God is we must pray accordingly. Now, George brought up a good question in our Sunday school hour this morning that I'd like to look at from a slightly different angle, but uh, tackle a little bit. The God who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that's language drawn from Ephesians 1, has said this in his word. Listen to these words, what God has claimed. He says, I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times Things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. I believe, and I think you would agree with me, that God's word predestinating, and now I'm not just talking about predestination for salvation, but predestinating all things, God's word predestinating is over and above our word praying. I think that everybody here would agree with that. His word rules. But predestination does not strike out prayer. It doesn't. Now, some people think it does. But if you don't pray because of your understanding of the sovereignty of God, this is what you have done. You have pitted one part of God's word against another part of God's word. Over here in this corner, God's claim to sovereignty. And in that corner, God's command to pray. Fight. You know? (laughs) And that's not good. It's God versus God in that sense, isn't it? If predestinating strikes out praying... You can take all the commandments to pray and all the promises concerning prayer, the examples of prayer, 
all the Psalms, all the prayers of Jesus and all his teachings about prayer, and you can, you can take them all and you can put them to the shredder if predestination strikes out prayer. So let me make this statement. The Lord has determined, according to the counsel of his will, that one one means by which he will accomplish the counsel of his will is the prayers of his people. The Lord's counsel, he says in Isaiah, shall stand. That doesn't shut up our prayers. The Bible is anticipating that it will energize our prayers. Only I would say this. Let your prayers then be framed by the promises and the priorities of God. Just like Micah's. Micah here has been a, he's been a conduit for God's promises. He has received them by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He has proclaimed them to God's people by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so now that he has been this, this conduit receiving and giving, he is primed to pray accordingly in the Spirit. And you and I will do the same thing if we will also hear the word of the Lord. So let's get into verse 14. This is what Micah prays. He calls out to God, in light of the promise of salvation and judgment, shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. What framed this prayer? Well, the immediate promises right before. But also, what I want you to understand, and I I could very easily be losing some of you now, what also frames uh, Micah's prayer are the promises of God throughout the entire book. As we have meditated on the particulars of Micah's message over these last several weeks, I've been reminding you again and again about the message of the entire thing. Do you remember? It's those who hear the word of the Lord, believing will be the remnant that God saves to shepherd as his flock. And I've been telling you that time and time again. Now, I've also told you how many oracles, just to get your attention here. How many oracles, how many rounds, I should say, how many rounds or series of oracles are there in this book? Does anybody remember? Ooh, that's good. Three rounds, right. And they all begin with the command to do what? Hear. Yes, sweet. They all begin with the command that God's people hear his word. And each of these rounds of oracles concentrates on this promise of God's salvation for his people through his shepherd king. So what I'm saying to you is, it's not just verses 11 and 12 and 13 that are now formulating Micah's cry to God. It's the promises all through this book. So look back at chapter 2. The first round of oracles, what is an oracle again? It's an announcement from God concerning salvation or judgment delivered through a prophet. Okay, so back in round one, which is chapters one and two, there are 29 verses. And most of this speaks of God's judgment. But at the very end, the last two verses of that first round 
we have this promise of salvation, and I want you to read it. Chapter 2, 11 and 12, or chapter 2, 12 and 13. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. You can see this theme. God shepherding his, his people, shepherding his flock. We find the same theme announced again in round two. So turn over to chapter four. We're going to read through verses six through eight quickly. In that day declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted and the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, he speaks to Jerusalem, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it shall come. The former dominion shall come. Kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. In the same round, just a little bit later, chapter 5, verses 2 through 4. Who can forget this? But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. So now, as we come into the third round of chapters 6 and 7, and the book draws to a close, the promises that Micah has received and delivered are now being framed on his lips in a prayer up to God. And he cries out to God, Shepherd your flock! You promise salvation for those who hear. You promise judgment for those who do not believe. Shepherd your flock, O God. Shepherd your flock. What would Micah give to see what we have seen in history? What would he give to be here today? Of course, he's in glory, so he's not too worried about it. But at that time, what would he give to be here today to hear the announcement of the gospel of Jesus Christ fulfilling this promise? Now, before I go to Jesus. Let's again step back from Micah's promise and go back to the beginning, to the origin, to Genesis. In Genesis 49, through the patriarch Jacob, God promised, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people's. Who is the shepherd king promised from the tribe of Judah? Our Lord Jesus Christ is the one. Now we go back to Jesus. From Micah to Genesis to Christ. Jesus is the one who claimed, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. 
just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. This is his promise for the Gentiles. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. I should have had you turn to John chapter 10 too, but time is moving on. Now back to Micah's prayer in verse 14. You see how he longs for the old prosperity to return? He says, the people of God dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. Back in chapter 3, I want to understand what Micah means by forest. Back in chapter 3, verse 12, God had promised the city of Jerusalem judgment for its sins. And he said, Jerusalem shall become a wooded height. The word that is translated wooded height in chapter 3 is being translated forest here. So Micah is recognizing in chapter 7 that as one day Jerusalem will be literally run over by the woods, it will become a wooded height overgrown. He says, This is already the case spiritually. As it will be literally, so it is now spiritually. We are overrun, overgrown with evil. Remember what he said back earlier in this chapter when he was complaining about the most moral of God's vineyard. He said they're nothing but uh, briars and thorn hedges. That's what he means by this place is a forest overrun with evil. Now, he says, okay, so we dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. What does he mean by that? 700 years earlier or so, God had spoke through Moses a promise concerning the land that Israel was about to inherit. This is what God said about this land. I mean, just the picture, I think, will draw a longing. The Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, he promised Israel, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs, flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey. I'm skipping forward a little bit. This is coming from Deuteronomy 8. And he says, And you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. What does that sound like? It sounds like a garden. It's a good garden land. Micah says God's people are alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. He is saying that he has seen the enemy conduct its rampage across Israel in the north and conquer it. He has seen the enemy come right to the the gate of Jerusalem and, and hem the people of God in. So they are alone in a forest overrun with evil in the middle of a garden land, and he longs for the old prosperity to return. So he prays, let them graze in Bashan and Gilead, as in the days of old. Bashan and Gilead were Transjordan regions. So east of Jerusalem, across the Jordan River, Bashan and Gilead were these very fertile regions that um, Israel as a nation had enjoyed back in the days of uh, David and his son Solomon. Micah is praying to bring us back to that. The large open pastures, the freedom, the old prosperity. This prayer of Micah is once again answered in 
the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, John 10 again, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And of course, this promise runs right into what we earlier read when he said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus is the shepherd who makes his flock lie down in green pastures. He is the one who leads us by still waters and restores our souls. He is the one who leads us through the valley of the shadow of death in which we fear no evil because his rod and his staff comfort us. You and I, all who believe, are the flock of the Lord's inheritance. So, promise of salvation, promise of judgment, the corresponding prayer, and then immediately with Micah's prayer, another promise of salvation. As that prayer rises up, this promise comes down. Verse 15, As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. God had done marvelous things in the old days by which he redeemed his people from slavery in Egypt. He says, I am going to do it again. The marvelous things that make for redemption. When? When did he do this? Remember this this strange thing about the promises of God. Strange because it's not anything like us, I mean. That one good word can mean a hundred good things for God's people. So, in a little while, several decades' time, God's people will be redeemed, as Jeremiah 16, and I think chapter 23 puts it, they will be redeemed from the north country. They will come out of Babylon, and they will be brought back into their their own land. That's God's promise. I will do marvelous things. I will accomplish another exodus. What were the marvelous things from the old days, by the way? God's judgment passing over his people to land on that Passover lamb that was sacrificed in the place of the firstborn. God's judgment passing over to land on that lamb and on the gods of Egypt, false gods, and on the armies of Egypt. That was a marvelous thing. God's people, all all of them on a dry land crossing through the Red Sea, a marvelous thing. And then for the next 40 years, one miraculous provision and intervention and salvation after another. Marvelous things. God says, for a new redemption, I will do marvelous things. Ultimately, of course, this is not fulfilled in the exodus from the north country, from Babylon. But it is accomplished by the sacrifice of our Passover lamb in our place and our redemption from the grip of the enemy, from sin and from death. God accomplishes our redemption through Jesus Christ, the lamb who takes away the sin of the world, who is sacrificed in our place. By him, God delivers us from the domain of darkness and transfers us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have our redemption. These are the marvelous things that God is promising for a new exodus, a new redemption. 
But included in those marvelous things, I believe, we also have what is promised in verses 16 and 17. Here is another promise of judgment. The nation shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths and their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God and they shall be in fear of you. Listen, please. As far as your hopes are in anything but Jesus, those hopes will be put to shame. The Bible asks in Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? Why do they conspire against God and rebel against Him and want to throw off His rule like some kind of chain? They plot in vain against our God. Our Lord responds to their false hopes of freedom outside of God. He says, But as for me, I have set my king in Zion on my holy hill. The Bible promises that the people of, who belong to our enemy will make war on our king. They will make war on the lamb, it says in Revelation 17. And the lamb will conquer them, for he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings. It's promised in 2 Thessalonians. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, with his mighty angels in flaming fire, he will inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. The promise of Micah 7 is a new redemption by the marvelous things that our God does. This will be fulfilled when Jesus returns. We will marvel. We should marvel now already because we know, we've seen, we've heard. Our God is, to put it one way, multitasking. Us, one thing at a time. Our brains are suited for one concentration. If we try to concentrate on any number, forget it. There are, our effectiveness in all of them is going to be diminished. But look at what God is doing. I mean, we've, we've connected all of his words and his works to this larger network of promises, words, and works. We've drawn from all of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, from Micah to Genesis and back to our Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to see that every word of promise is yes in Christ. And every work is through Christ and for him. All, th- all things being worked together to the good of those who love him, to conform us to Christ and to unite all things in Christ. So it's been a study this morning in what I think are pretty obscure verses for us today from a minor prophet. But the Bible says, great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them. 
I hope our study this morning has illumined for you this larger working of God, this great history of our redemption through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that the effect will be that your hopes, as God-centered as they are now, will become more God-centered. And your prayers more God-centered, formulated by His promises and His purposes. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I want to say we praise you that you have spoken to us. You have given us your word. You have promised us great things. And I pray, Father, that every single person here would be captivated by how all of these glorious promises are fulfilled in this one same person, your Son, Jesus of Nazareth. I pray, Father, that we would be awestruck and moved by what you have worked out for us all through history. And you work still. Father, we have hopes in a lot of things that are temporary, that are earthbound, that are passing away. I pray, Father, that we would have the conviction that we must put our hopes all in you. And I pray, Father, that the prayers that we raise up to heaven would be centered on what you have determined and promised to do for us in Jesus to your eternal glory. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.